Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and this episode is all about fear. What happens in the body when we go into a panic attack? And why should we keep fear around? Or have we evolved beyond its use? Eva Holland is a writer based in Whitehorse, Yukon. She's a correspondent with Outside Magazine. She's also been in Wired, Grantland, and the best American travel writing. In 2015, Eva was forced to confront the question, what happens when the thing you fear the most comes true? It started her down the path that became her first full-length book, Nerve, A Personal Journey Through the Science of Fear. Here's her story. You know, most people have bookshelves, but you had a different place for keeping scary books, or at least one book in particular. Could you tell me about that? <laughs> sure. So when I was in junior high, I read It by Stephen King, took it out from the library, and I hadn't really read horror books before that, uh, and it, it completely terrified me. And I had seen... Um, on the show Friends, Joey is reading The Shining, and when he's not reading it, he keeps it in the freezer because he thinks that it can't get him uh, from there. So I also kept the the public library's copy of it in the freezer when I wasn't actively reading it in hopes that that would uh, keep me safe. <laughs> well, how does a book handle being in a freezer? Well, like, what does it do to the pages, if anything? You know, it didn't seem to... I think if you put, like, a damp book in the freezer, it would, uh, it would cause problems. But as long as it's dry, it just... You know, it was cold and it came out cold. It didn't, it didn't, didn't appear to have any effect on it. Don't tell the public library. <laughs> um, how would you describe your younger self on the, on the phobic scale? If you're talking, you know, full-blown afraid of everything to afraid of nothing, to being fearless. I was definitely closer to the phobic end of the scale. I wasn't, when I was younger, I, I didn't have at least set an understanding of what I was afraid of in the same way that I do now, but I, I would have considered myself to be um, cautious for sure. I was a cautious kid, very uh, risk averse, aware of potential consequences. You know, I was, I, I didn't, uh, I once told my mom I didn't run as fast as I could in gym class in case I would fall. Um, I didn't climb trees. I was pretty, yeah, I wouldn't, I was inhibited, I guess is, is the term. I wouldn't say that I was like phobic in the ways that I became later in terms of sort of full-blown panic attacks in response to certain things, but, uh, but I was definitely cautious. Was that uh, something that you saw, you know, around you? Was that uh, simply like a behavior of, uh, you know, seeing and, and parroting what your parents were doing or, or anything of that sort? I don't think so. You know, I, that can be one of the ways that, that these things are sort of transmitted. Uh, inhibited people are more likely to have inhibited children, I think, is the understanding. But um, my parents, you know, my dad certainly is an introvert. Uh, and my mom was sort of one of those medium people, I think, who can sort of thrive in a group, but also can thrive alone. But they weren't, uh, they never seemed to me to be scared of anything. They were, you know, braver than I was about things like singing in front of people or you know all the all the stuff that kids can be really self-conscious about they did not appear to be hung up on so I don't know where I got it from so what were you like as a kid beyond the hesitating from running as fast as you could because you don't want to lose control like were you were you a daydreaming type were you mostly in your head or or more in the moment mm, yeah total bookworm pretty in my head. Particularly, I was a bit more outgoing, I think, when we lived in Saskatoon when I was uh, really young. We moved when I was 
seven or eight to Ottawa. And that's when I had been a reader before that. But once we moved to Ottawa, I just kind of buried myself in books for a few years. And, and I, I made friends at school and stuff, but I was never as, as sociable again, I think, as I had been in Saskatoon. I have a lot of memories of like, you know, sitting in the corner of the yard at recess reading a book. Um, definitely spend a lot of time kind of doing my own thing and thinking about things and having ideas. And yeah, I guess daydreams, not a living in the moment kid, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so so this more the kind of the classic uh, moving from one city to another place, uh, having to start anew and making friends. And that can naturally lead a person to perhaps be a bit more introverted or, or spend more time by themselves. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And, and that combined with, you know, the the, my parents split up almost simultaneously as well with the move. And so, you know, I was either at one parent's house or the other, and they were probably at work. And so I had a lot of time on my own, and I learned how to just kind of enjoy that time. You have a binder of fantasy novels that you started writing when you were young, like handwritten cursive novels. What was what was the central story, if you remember any of those uh, novels? How do you know that? Did my cousin tell you that? <laughs> no, this is from another interview that you'd done. Uh, geez, I don't know how many years ago. Okay, I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember ever talking about that publicly. That's so funny. I was like, that's not in my book. Um, <laughs> I have not looked at them in some time, but they are all very much on the sort of classic, classic fantasy novel framework of like, you know, band of misfits finds their way together on a quest kind of stuff. I think I had one that I worked on for a while in particular that had a bit of like a chosen chosen child storyline about this family who who, uh, who lose their parents and uh, the siblings have to kind of figure out how to defeat the the evil that came for their parents. Um, mm. um, yeah, I haven't looked at them in a long time. I still have them all. I think the one that I got furthest on, I had like a couple hundred handwritten single space pages. <laughs> <laughs> So that storyline is interesting, though, uh, thinking about the children that lose their parents and, and have to find their way. That's sort of a preoccupation of yours that you write about in this book is is this fear that you have and had from an early age. Talk a little bit about how this book, uh, your book Nerve, came about. Mm-hmm. So my mom lost her mom when she was 10 and her father when she was 19. So she was orphaned at 20. And I grew up very aware of those facts. Um, she would talk about about them a lot and what their loss had, had meant to her. Her mom in particular, you know, her life was really derailed after her mom died. She was she and her sisters were sent off to sort of different boarding schools and relatives' houses. She she skipped through a bunch of different schools over the years, I think three or four different boarding schools. So that was really kind of the end of her life as she'd known it. And so I grew up really afraid of losing of losing my parents or my mom in particular because I had sort of seen this lasting harm that had been done to her. And so the book came about after my mom did die suddenly in the summer of 2015 from a stroke. And I was like, wow, my, my worst fear is coming true. Like this is happening. I always sort of felt like this would happen, you know, this sort of sense of inevitability. Um, and then, you know, a few months passed of, of very acute grief. And then I sort of came through the worst of it and realized that although I, you know, miss my mom and, and I'll always be sad about that, I was going to be okay. I wasn't going to be sort of irreparably harmed in the ways that she had been for various reasons, including, you know, that I was in my 30s, not 10, and that, you know, my dad didn't send me to boarding school um, when <laughs> she died. And not to be too hard on my on my grandfather, it was the 60s. He didn't know what to do, you know. 
we mm -hmm. uh, we have a much better understanding of how to help children through grief now. But um, so I had come through the worst of it. I was going to be okay, and and that was sort of empowering to realize that I had faced my worst fear and survived. And meanwhile, I had been struggling with a couple of other issues. I had this ongoing, pretty serious fear of heights that had been kind of dogging my life for uh, a period of time. And then I had a newer problem with driving as a result of a series of car accidents. And so I decided that if I could face my worst fear and survive, I could probably try to face my other fears and see if I could renegotiate them or, you know, the typical language you use is like conquer fear, overcome fear, defeat fear, this sort of thing. And so the book project grew out of this sort of personal goal to see if I could renegotiate this relationship with fear. You start the book with a trip that you and your friends take to this ice climbing spot uh, somewhere in the outskirts of, of Whitehorse. It's a climbing route called The Usual. And you're coming back from there, and there's this, you know, sort of frozen river, and you, you know, freeze in the moment. Can you tell a little bit of the story of, of what that moment was like and, and what happened there? Mm -hmm. So I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't have language like panic attack, but I, I became convinced that if I tried to walk down this frozen creek, I would slide to my death even though I was wearing crampons and everyone else was walking down the frozen Creek with crampons on with no difficulty. I just, uh, my, I was, I was sort of cold. I was tired. I was depleted in various ways. I was hungry and I just sort of snapped. I, I decided I couldn't proceed and I froze and refused to go anywhere. And this had happened to me a couple of times previously in my life, but people, they'd been years earlier. One, when I was, 15 and or 16 and one when I was maybe 23 or 24 but this was way more significant the other two you know people were able to talk me down pretty quickly and and this one was you know a somewhat dangerous situation it's it's uh you know we're on the side of a mountain in in the winter in the subarctic it's getting mm -hmm. dark and uh and it took them quite a while to get me to move and some pretty sort of extreme measures to get me to move uh namely, you know, two people holding each of my hands and then a third person pointing each step where I should put my feet. Um, <laughs> so I didn't, I, I didn't understand what that was until I told a friend about it later who, who has uh, dealt with anxiety issues uh, in a more sort of generalized way. And I said, I just, I don't know what happened to me. I just freaked out. You know, I just kind of had a meltdown. And she said, Eva, that was a panic attack. And I didn't understand that that was something that could happen to me. I, I, you know, I'd heard of them, but I didn't, wasn't something I associated with my own life. And then, and then I sort of saw this pattern afterwards of, of there's been a few times when I've just been convinced I'm going to die and I, and I freeze and they've all related to a sense of, of exposure to, to heights and the possibility of falling. Mm -hmm. it, it seems interesting to hear this from the outside and perhaps it's a good time to backtrack for a moment because, you know, what your readers know you for is for being this uh, writer immersed in the outdoors. It's for doing things like the Yukon Arctic Ultra, this ultra marathon uh, through frozen conditions or 72 hours of extreme polar training. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you brought you, you know, an Ottawa kid, uh, a former Saskatchewan kid to the Yukon and, and to being a freelance writer. Right. <clears throat> so when we spoke earlier about my inhibited nature as a child and and uh, and how I was very risk averse. That doesn't square with my public image at all. Um, 
and even though I feel like I've made a lot of progress away from that, I still feel like a fundamentally pretty cautious person. But I'm I'm living this life now that seems from the outside to be very adventurous and, and feels adventurous to me sometimes too. Um, so I moved to the Yukon a little over a decade ago. I had become a full-time freelance writer. I was I was back home in Ottawa after grad school and I just thought you can live anywhere in the world. It doesn't make sense to stay in your hometown, particularly not when your hometown is Ottawa, <laughs> which, you know, bless its heart, but it's not, uh, it's not like, uh, at the time I was focused on travel writing and it didn't mm. really seem like a, a place that made sense to be based in. It's not, uh, like a global travel hotspot or anything. You didn't want to be a reporter on Parliament Hill. <laughs> I did not No. Um, and so I was sort of on the lookout for a home base that would be kind of an adventure, that would be kind of an exciting place to be and where there would be lots of good stories and maybe not too much competition for people writing them. And I, uh, I have a cousin who moved here a year or two before I did, and I came to visit him in the summer of 2009 for five weeks and sort of on a tryout. I'd always been curious about the North, the territories. My, uh, my mom and her sisters spent part of their childhoods in Yellowknife. And uh, I, so I came to Whitehorse for a visit and just really loved it. Uh, met my cousin's friends and just kind of plugged right into their friend group. Some of those people that he introduced me to in those first few days are still my closest friends here and, and in the world. And it seemed like a really good place to be a writer. So I, uh, I moved up here a few months later. And, and when I moved here, I wasn't an outdoorsy person really at all. I was just beginning in my 20s to start to think about stuff like hiking and camping. And so moving here accelerated that process significantly. And it became what I wrote about because that's what people were interested in from this part of the world. Um, that's what you can sell to magazines in the U.S. or in Toronto is, is stories about, you know, our, our dog sled races and our ultra marathons and, and, uh, and polar explorers and this sort of stuff. So that was I sort of got involved professionally and then personally as well. This was what all my friends were doing. And so I was trying to learn to keep up to be able to go along. And that's when some of these heights issues started really cropping up for me because I hadn't known when I, when I <laughs> lived in Saskatoon and Ottawa that, uh, that I had such a problem with exposed steep terrain. So here you are, a naturally cautious person being introduced to your cousin's friends who are these ice climbers and, uh, and outdoors people who are going on, you know, whether it's canoeing expeditions, kayak expeditions, climbing expeditions, you're, you're thrust into the midst of that. Yeah, I kind of got thrown in the deep end. Um, <laughs> you know, most of the first stuff I did was was not uh, for beginners. The, the first multi-day hike I did was three days, you know, 20 plus kilometers a day with a full pack. Um, creek crossings that you sort of had to do proper technique on because they were dangerous, dangerously high water. And we saw five grizzly bears. Like there was no, uh, <laughs> there was no like moderate setting for getting into this stuff here the I, I think about the Yukon often being kind of like intermediate to advanced like it's not really for beginners and so it was a steep learning curve uh, but you know I was lucky in that even though my friends were all really experienced and really accomplished they were also you know not too cool to bring me along they didn't mind teaching they didn't mind um, you know easing up a little to include me hmm. One of the things you write about in this book is avoidance, you know, the technique of you're afraid of something, let's just, you know, pretend, or let's, let me structure my life in a way that I don't have to deal with those fears as many times as possible. How much of your fear experience would you say pre this book and, and the things that you did throughout this book, would you say looked like that? Yeah, I think, 
a fair bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's there's avoidance sort of by default, and then there's more active avoidance. And I didn't do much active avoidance. I I, I guess I did. So the the two previous panic attacks before this ice climbing trip, the really significant ones. One was when I tried to climb the mast of a tall ship in high school. And the other was when I was at the top of a cathedral in, in Florence in the tower. Um, and I loved sailing and I quit sailing after that incident. And I loved old churches and I stopped going up into the towers of them after that incident. So there, there was avoidance, but it wasn't, didn't affect my life in a broad strokes kind of way because I was living in a place where most of the time I wasn't, there weren't many sort of heights related triggers around me. I, so I did give up things I cared about, but it was fairly narrowly focused. But once I got here, what I would have had to give up to continue practicing avoidance started to broaden and broaden and broaden. I can relate to that quite a lot. Your stories of being in Florence and being at the top of uh, Il Duomo. I haven't been there, but but this this fear of of looking down and just needing to be like I, I have to just sit right now <laughs> How, yeah. as, uh, as illogical as it may be and as uh, unhelpful as it may be what's what's happening in the brain in in a moment like that when your body's telling you I have to sit down I have to just I can't do this anymore mm-hmm so it was interesting to learn more about the actual mechanisms of the fear reaction um, they it wasn't really what I expected. So the the basic understanding is that our our bodies, of course, sort of sense the world around us in various ways. The, the five senses that we talk about, but also you know temperature, pressure, this sort of thing, and um, they bring back that information to our brains. And what people used to think is that the the information about a potential threat to your safety would be con- conveyed to your brain, and your brain would say, ah we're afraid, time to fire up the fight or flight response. But it's a, it's a subtle distinction, but what actually appears to happen is that the, that sensory information travels to sort of the lower parts of the brain, which, which are not our, our sort of conscious mind at that point. And a structure called the amygdala kind of makes the judgment call of like, is this a threat or not, in, in the simplest terms. And if it identifies a threat, then the autonomic nervous system fires up the, the what we call our fight or flight response often. Uh, scientists would prefer to say fight, flight, or freeze response or to just dispense with that whole right. um, thing because it's more complicated than that. But, but the, the threat response or the fear response gets fired up, and that's, that's a physical reaction. It's, it's uh, pupil dilation, it's uh, chest constricting, heart rate increasing, maybe goosebumps, all that stuff. Um, you know, stuff happens with, with the, with the, uh, with our muscles, all that stuff that is preparing us to, to try to protect ourselves, to, to go on the defensive in one way or another. Mm. And, and then what happens is, uh, again, your body sends those signals back to the brain saying, look, our hair is standing on end. Our pupils are dilated. Our heart is racing. And then it goes sort of upstairs to the cerebral cortex, uh, the, where the sort of the conscious human consciousness resides, as best we can figure. And and then your body says, "Oh, look, look at how we're reacting. We're afraid." And and that matters in terms of some of the treatments that that they've worked on, because if you can stop the physical reaction then you don't have the emotional reaction, as opposed to if the physical reaction flows from the emotional reaction. Um, when the goal is to try to stop the emotional reaction, the panic, it's, it's, in, it's important to know sort of 
if the cart is before the horse or, or whatever the case may be. How, do, how does one stop the physical reaction before the emotional one? Um, various ways. Most, most of them involve forms of exposure and, and sort of practice. So the classic exposure therapy, and that was what I misunderstood again, that, that exposure therapy just meant, you know, exposing yourself to what you were afraid of mm -hmm. until it wore off, essentially. But it's not about it wearing off necessarily. It's about training your body to remain calm in the face of the stimulus. Mm. So that's why something like what I did with going skydiving to try to cure my fear of heights was such a failure because it was not, because it was too, it was, it was shock and awe. Right. It wasn't, um, you know, there was, it was, there was nothing for my body to learn from that experience except like, whoa, that was terrifying. But, but done correctly, a more classic exposure therapy is hugely incremental. And so you're, you know, you, one day you look at an elevator and the next day you take one step closer to the elevator and maybe eventually you stand in the elevator with the doors open. And, and it's a really, really long time before you actually ride the elevator. Um, and the goal is to build a structure in your brain that allows for calm under those circumstances. And so you try to only push until you can't remain calm anymore and then you retreat before you can panic and then you try to get one step further the next time and so you're building it's it's this panic reaction can become sort of a habit right it's um our our brains learn that pattern and they follow it and so you need to teach your brain a new pattern of response mm. seems like a good time you mentioned the skydiving already uh that you did try your own sort of homespun as you call them in the book exposure therapy techniques Tell me a little bit about that, how that played out as well. Sure. Um, I tried to use rock climbing as a form of sort of DIY exposure therapy. And it, it was, I wouldn't say it was useless. I would say it was useful. I did get better, um, but it was, it was really slow and it was really hard work. And that's always the knock on exposure therapy is that it's really slow and it's really hard work and a lot of people quit. <laughs> um, so uh, that... I, but it, but it did it did work particularly once I understood that it wasn't about just trying to push through you know so much of our culture says like suck it up just just push through don't you know kind of like get a hold of yourself and once I understood that it was about stopping before I panicked rather than trying to grit my teeth through the panic uh, I was more productive hmm. how is it being someone who's, you know, you're immersing yourself in these experiences of, of trying to face your fears, uh, getting on the rock, skydiving, being someone who writes about people who do these sorts of things all the time. Was there any sort of comparison going on between here I am in my neuroses, if you will, and here are these people who seem to just get it so easily? Oh, yeah, it's hard not to feel ridiculous. <laughs> um, not just with sort of the, the more famous people that I've written about, but just also with my friends who appeared to have you know, to this stuff seemed to come so easily to them. It's, um, it's really, it can be, it can feel really embarrassing. And, and one thing I learned as well is that shame and humiliation and embarrassment at your reaction, at least for me, certainly worsens my reaction, my fear reaction. And so it would be this cycle of like, oh no, I'm freaking out. People are going to see me. Now I'm freaking out more. Now people are really looking at me. Um, <laughs> this sort of horrible cycle. Um, but yeah, no, it's, but the thing is like, even people that appear to have it all together, 
generally have something they're afraid of. And, and sometimes they're afraid of things that we see them do all the time with apparent ease as well. It's, it's um, you know, some of my climbing friends who are pretty serious climbers were like, oh, yeah, I'm afraid of heights, too. And I was kind of like, I don't believe you. Mm. But uh, but it's it's you know, it's different for everyone in terms of how strongly you react or how visibly you react, whether you feel the fear inside or or there are, you know, there are some climbers who just don't feel afraid when they do this stuff. <laughs> right. As, and that would be a person perceptually anyway, uh, like Alex Honnold, who everyone knows so well now from uh, Free Solo and as someone you mentioned in your book as well, person who seems to operate with a totally different set of uh, fear reactions than we do. Yeah, I wondered if that's where you were going with with that. Yeah, he uh, he appears to be impervious to fear. Of course, he's not. He's just scared of different things than than most of us. I think. You know, I've I know. I think Outside Magazine got him to like learn a different sport a couple years ago, and I forget if it was mountain biking or whitewater rafting, some other some other sort of adrenaline outdoor sport, and. Uh, free diving anyway i remember seeing the interview and he was like no way man that's too scary for me (laughs) um and i was like oh he's just he's just like us (laughs) what's the most interesting story you know personally or something that you came upon in your research that couldn't make it into the book you know any anything like this you have to kill your darlings as the writing world is so fond of saying oh gosh um i felt like i was you know struggling to make the book long enough for my contractual (laughs) requirement but um i one rabbit hole that i sort of ultimately didn't go down as deeply as i would have liked to is like nightmare science um you know what we know about nightmares and dreams and how that connects to memory and and the role of sleep in all of this i would have loved to spend more time on that and to some extent i couldn't because I, you know, ran out of time, but to some extent I couldn't because the science isn't there yet. There's so much we still don't know, but there's these tantalizing hints about, about the interplay of fear and trauma and memories and sleep and dreams um, that, that we don't fully understand yet, or not even close to fully understand, that we sort of barely understand at all. And that, that's something that maybe I'll be able to come back to in, in, you know, 10 or 15 years when the science has caught up. I don't know. I found that stuff fascinating. Mm. There's a theory, and you write about this in the book, that trauma survivors can develop a, a fear of fear itself. You know, there's the Michel de Montaigne quote, uh, he who fears he shall suffer already suffers what he fears. Uh, how true did that feel for you? It's very true. And it's the thing about it is it's real. You know, there's the famous line about uh, all we have to fear is fear itself, and it's meant to be dismissive, like there's nothing really to be scared of. Mm-hmm. But but the the fear of fear is a fear of of these powerful panics and being overtaken and and losing control and it is a scary thing to have happen to you you know to be to be hijacked by traumatic memories and to have them kind of grab you by the throat and take over your body that's that's a real thing to be that's genuinely you know very valid to be afraid of um but there's there's ways we can we can improve on that which is which is good but i i think yeah that's a very I, that quote is so funny because it's it's always meant to be like, look, see, there's we're fine. There's nothing to be afraid of. But but fear of fear is real and 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 it's valid. But it can become self-perpetuating and sort of a you know self-fulfilling prophecy of if you're sitting there being like, I'm so scared, I'm going to freak out, and then you freak out. Hmm. Um, it's hard to sever that that cycle to sort of snap that cycle, I guess. How much of fear, either in your experience or in what you've learned, is about control, like about when we feel like we've lost control? 
for me, I think that was a big piece of it. I don't, I can't speak for others in that, but I think that that sense of agency is is really important. They do know that feeling like you have agency can play a role in whether or not you experience PTSD after a traumatic event. If you feel like you were able to save yourself or others, you're more likely to come out sort of emotionally unharmed or less damaged mm. than if you feel like you were... Um, matters were completely out of your hands and you were just sort of a, a bystander to your own trauma. Um, so yeah, control is, control is a big piece of it. And, and on the trauma side and also on sort of the, the phobia and anxiety side too, I think a lot of us who experience those feelings, it is about trying to control variables and, and know what's coming and, and, you know, be able to predict potential negative outcomes in the future and, and try to navigate around them preemptively, which of course you, you know, you have to come to a place of acceptance that, that we can't always do that. Hmm. What is the case for fear? I mean, so much of it we'd love to live without. Uh, if you think about that quote, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. What's the case for keeping it around or, or for having a, a healthy fear, if you will? Yeah, fear is essential. Fear is our most important survival tool, I think, probably. And uh, I really came around to seeing it differently by the end of the book. You know, at the, at the start, I was all about, you know, I'm going to conquer this, I'm going to defeat that, I'm going to overcome it. And by the end, I really had a new appreciation for fear because without it, we have no drive to to survive. We have no guardrails on our lives. We have no boundaries. No, you know, there's um, uh, a famous neurological patient who I write about in the book, uh, patient SM, who's been studied for decades, who a rare disease has has destroyed her amygdala and she effectively can't summon a fear response. So she doesn't feel afraid basically ever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that doesn't just mean that she's sort of fearless in the face of obvious danger. Like, yes, she's had a gun held to her head and she didn't flinch, but she also does things like forgetting to eat, um, and spending all her money. You know, Mm. it's, she doesn't have any fear of consequences of any kind. Um, the one that really touched me is that she loses friends quickly because not because she's a jerk, but because she's too, she comes on too strong. Mm -hmm. She's too much. She has no fear of rejection. So she's just like, I like you, let's be best friends, you know? And uh, it's it's amazing to think about all the little ways that fear sort of checks our behavior every day, um, fear of, of all kinds of consequences. And to see all the ways that it's played out in her life being literally fearless, uh, you know, she's had a really hard life and she's lucky to even be alive. So uh, learning about her really helped change my perspective to, to, yeah, we do need to, when our fear is sort of, um, running rampant and impairing our lives in some way, we need to work on those excessive, over-the-top fear reactions so that we can be be happy. But but I really learned to sort of value my fear through the process of working on this book. Hmm. There's a, there's a fascinating juncture in this book, and I think what you've just said speaks to that, where you recognize you know you've been working for so long at ignoring your fear responses. You know you've been conditioned to think, okay, my fear is I can't trust my fear because it's, uh, it's, you know, not serving me. And now you have to learn to trust that instinct again. Yeah, that's the next challenge for me. That's really where I'm, where I'm at now. Having done all this work to curb my, my over-the-top reactions is, yeah, now learning to listen. When, 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 when my fear speaks up and says, you're not safe, for so long I said, you're, you know, you're lying to me. I know you're lying. And now I have to learn to listen. And I I don't know how that will go. It's definitely still a work in progress. Hmm. 
we're in a strange place, uh, I think, historically and, and perhaps particularly now, where we have so many of our survival needs accounted for, whether that's you know food or, or shelter or comfort, and yet uh, we haven't rid ourselves of anxiety or, or fear. Uh, you know, we're as anxious or fearful as ever. Uh, what do you make of that, uh, about uh, this sort of strange place we occupy? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I don't... I don't know why. I, I mean, I think some people think, you know, it's actually getting worse the safer we get. And I don't know if that's, you know, this is entirely speculative, but I don't know if that's partly a product of we have these systems that are intended to be used and the safer we get, the the fewer sort of rational outlets they have. I don't, I don't know if that would make sense. It's an interesting time because, you know, um, since I wrote this book, we a lot of people have had their sense of safety pretty deeply shaken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I don't know how it will all play out, but I, I do think there's a gap between the world that our systems were built for the sort of, you know, hunter gatherer world and, and the world that we for the most part exist in now. And, and there's still some learning to be done and some catching up to do in terms of how we respond and how we understand safety and danger. Hmm. Um, at a really core level. Uh, speaking of, of physical distancing, you were able to spend some of your time writing this book uh, at Kate Harris's Off the Grid Cabin. I've read Lands of Lost Borders. I've read her writing about the cabin. What was it like to work on this book there? Oh, it's paradise. It's, uh, <laughs> um, I was there. I wrote the first, I guess, the first two chapters of the book over two weeks in the summer of 2018 in like a very intense period at, at Kate's cabin. And it was, there was a heat wave and it, so it was like just stunning. I was dog sitting for her and I would get up every day and, and go for a run and then write or read. I was reading at the time some pretty like heavy duty neuroscience. So I would, I would do some writing and do some reading kind of alternating whichever I had energy for. And then I would have like my one beer in the sun on the, on the cabin porch looking down on the Creek and, and then uh, pretty much go to bed. <laughs> um, Do it all over it again. Was, yeah, it was amazing. It was such a gift to be able to to hide out there. And, and um, you know, she's got, it's a tiny little cabin, but they've got it completely lined. The, you know, the, sh- the walls are lined with bookshelves and like up to the eaves. Um, so I could, you know, before bed, I would, you know, pick up a novel or a book of poetry off the, off the shelf and it was it was blissful, and then I got to go back there again last summer to do some of my final final revisions for a few days, and it was a, a total refuge. Mm. Um, yeah, I I look forward to whatever she writes next from that cabin. <laughs> uh, a book like this is such a, a lengthy endeavor to spend so much time with, you know, months can be years. How do you plan to spend your time now that uh, now that you have this sort of freedom, <laughs> I suppose, of of having this done now? Yeah, I, um, I'm excited to get back to doing more magazine work after taking, you know, the better part of two years mostly off from, from magazine work. I'm, I'm excited to get back into telling those types of stories again. Some of the rabbit holes I wasn't able to go down in my, in my research for the book, um, I think could maybe make some interesting magazine stories. Um, so I'm excited about that. And then, um, starting to think about what could be a second book as well. Um, I don't know for sure yet. Something that I could start researching without leaving Whitehorse at this point. <laughs> uh, you, you talked about this a little bit already, but uh, if you think more about how this book uh, changed your relationship with fear, how, how would you say that uh, that you think differently about fear now? I think I respect it more. 
I, um, I understand its utility and I, I understand its necessity and I'm not so eager to try to sort of defeat it so much as to just train myself to use it right, to use it properly, to understand it and listen to it when I should and not listen when I shouldn't. Um, and that's an ongoing process, but I feel much better equipped now to, to sort of weather the overreactions and to, to listen to the true reactions. Um, yeah, I feel it sounds kind of corny to say, but I, I feel like I'm like my quality of life is better fundamentally for having worked on this book Mm. than it was when I started. You're still not going skydiving again anytime soon, I'm guessing. No, I thought about trying to skydive again to finish the book. And I just thought, you're not going to have fun. Like, even if it doesn't scare you quite as much, it's never, I'm still me, right? I'm still, I've, I've made some changes to how I react to certain things, but I'm, I'm still the kid who didn't want to run too fast and fall down on some level, you know? And so I'm never, I think no matter how much work I do to be able to tolerate heights, I'm never going to enjoy something like skydiving. Mm. Uh, Eva, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and most of all, tell someone else about it. If you want to know more about Eva, her book Nerve is out now. I've read it. It's great. You can find it in Canada through Alan Lane. It's also out in the States on The Experiment and available in a whole bunch of countries. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.